Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Hemp Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. Oh, you're telling me. Producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material from all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links support the show at no extra cost to you. In Season 12, the focus was big franchises and series. We covered both Paddington films, adapted from the beloved children's book character created by Michael Bond. Oh, I love those films so much. Hugh Grant is perfect. For our Pitch Perfect series, the first film was adapted from Mickey Rapkin's nonfiction book about collegiate acapella competitions. It's like a short story of my life, literally. I lived college acapella. Sing it, brother. I lived college acapella. <laughs> I didn't mean literally. <laughs> You know who you're talking to, right? The Twilight Saga dominated the season with five films adapted from Stephanie Meyer's vampire romance novels, Twilight, New Moon, Eclipse, and the two Breaking Dawn parts. Dominated with awkward romance and nonsense logic is more like it. <laughs> that too. Another Thin Man brought us back to Dashiell Hammett's only Thin Man sequel based on other Hammett material, The Farewell Murder, that wasn't just based on the characters from the first film. We talked about Train Spotting and its sequel, T2 Train Spotting, adapted from Irvine Welsh's novels. Ugh, I hate the sequel's name. I do too. And the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, adapted from J.R.R. Tolkien's epic fantasy series. Love these. Extended editions all the way, baby. Plus, all the Mission Impossible films based on the 1960s TV series. And we've still got at least one more to go. Members got to hear us chat about The Hustler and The Color of Money, adapted from Walter Tevis's books. Get all of these books and more at our Originals page, thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read from the movies we've covered at thenextreel.com slash originals. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Twilight is over. I like watching you sleep. It's kind of fascinating to me. I don't know how long I've waited for you. What is going on? Security guard at the mill got killed by some kind of animal. An animal? My family, we're different from others of our kind. You brought a snack. What, now he's coming after me? The hunt is his obsession. He's never gonna stop. I'd rather die than to stay away from you. He's got unparalleled senses, absolutely lethal. 
I'll do whatever it takes to make you safe again. You're faster than the others. But not stronger. I'm strong enough to kill you. You are my life now. Oh, Andy, Twilight. We decided to do Twilight, the entire series, because it's part of our big franchises year. And it's a big franchise. And I think inarguably, this is a big franchise, right? Yes. People love the, this thing. The books were popular. Uh, this is, of course, this first book was based on Stephanie Meyer's 2005 novel. And uh, then, of course, the subsequent uh, books that came after that all ended up um, getting adapted as well. And so, yes, we are here to look at them because they were incredibly popular. They created whole sorts of like <laughs> conversational battles. Are you on Team Edward or uh, Team, what's his name? Team, uh, um, why do Jacob. I? <laughs> Jacob. Jacob. <laughs> Jesus, man. Well, he's barely in this movie <laughs> of the ones, you know, this is. Taylor Lautner, he's so young, too. Mm. They all Such are so young. Young buck. They're all very young. They're all very, it is even also, Anna Kendrick looked like a little baby in this. Anna Kendrick should have been Alice. Fight me. I'm just saying. No, I loved Alice. Anna Kendrick Bad is cast. great. No, no, no. I love her as who she is. She was great in that role. Oh, yeah. Okay. Look, here's the thing. It is also uh, part of uh, a bit of its own cottage tourist industry where I am because, like, I am not even a highway drive. Like. 10 minutes from the Hoke house where the Cullens live. Um, I am 15 minutes from Madison High School, which is no longer, I think they renamed it. It's no longer Madison High School. And uh, it's right downtown. And we've seen shows there. Um, it, it like this, you go any, you go to Silver Falls uh, National Park, you, uh, you, I mean, there are signs that say Twilight was filmed here. Like there are signs where, um, hey, this was that scene in the movie where, uh, Edward pushed her against the rock and they got all sultry. And uh, like that's that's very much Twilight is very much a part still of our sort of Pacific Northwest lived experience. So, well, and what's funny about that is technically so is Phoenix where I am. Right. Because she just wanted to get out or not leave Phoenix. She was going to miss Phoenix. I thought that's the biggest lie in this movie. <laughs> well, she even says, I miss the heat. I'm like, no, you don't. Nobody misses the heat. <laughs> you clearly have not actually spent enough time here. You fool. Who says something like that? Oh, I miss right? that, that hot, hot Arizona heat. What are you talking mm. about, lady? <laughs> well, but it's but it's interesting because so much of the tourist industry uh, for the film really focuses – I mean, obviously, the bulk of it takes place – in I mean it's Washington, but filmed in your neck of the woods in Portland, and uh, and the the Phoenix portion really I mean it was largely not filmed in Phoenix. In fact, I the this the scene toward the beginning when she's uh, you know saying goodbye to her mom before she heads off, I was laughing to myself because the saguaro cactuses that, that are behind her, I'm like, they just. They just put those up. Those are some of the <laughs> fakest saguaros I've ever seen. Uh, you know, it was all filmed uh, somewhere in California. And so uh, I think around Pasadena. And so it just, it it's, you know, I mean, they got some B-roll shots just to make it, you know, really look like, hey, oh, well, there's a Southwest plane taking off from downtown Phoenix. Okay. <laughs> those are all Getty shots, man. <laughs> They're all uh, but from yes. stock. <laughs> yeah, but it's interesting that like the, the it did develop such a, a following and a, and a kind of a, a tourist industry for your part of the uh, world. But I'd like to say we picked this franchise to discuss because of the connections to both our parts of the world. But alas, it was really just because this was a really popular franchise and. Does it hold up? Um, you know, I mean, is it something that was designed for us? No, but you know, and, and, you know we're, we're going to try. We're going to talk about when we get into it. Talk about our approaches yeah. to the conversation, since it really isn't a franchise that's made for us. But I, I think also, is it like, is it something that feels like it is holding up over time, or does it start? Does it feel now like mm, maybe this film isn't um, working on the levels that it might have back in the 
uh, back in the in the 2008 to 2012 window of time. Yes, I look forward to that conversation. All right. Well, uh, this film was rated PG-13 when it was released here uh, in the States by the, the wonderful MPAA for some violence and a scene of sensuality. sensual it was a very long kiss it was a very long kiss very it it took a while to get to the kiss yeah okay so let's just okay before we get there no i don't want to start there because we're gonna have a lot to talk about with that i just want to say we are returning to Catherine hardwick this is a return to Catherine hardwick we talked about her back when we were did we did our uh, coming of age debuts because uh, she started with her film Thirteen, which we both found a lot of strength in. We both really enjoy that film. It's a very hard look at uh, at life as a as a young person who gets involved with the wrong people. And then we did Lords of Dogtown, which was an interesting biopic that we were like, man, we were okay on. It's easy to say for both of those films, there was a sense that Catherine Hardwick was somebody who tapped into that youth market, who seemed to really kind of connect with the sensibilities of that younger crowd. And I really enjoyed the way that she kind of um, found our way for the audience into the world of those younger people. And to that end, and then she did the nativity story, which arguably, I guess you could say, is another story about young people in this particular case, you know, a a couple of uh, young people who happen to, you know, have baby Jesus and (laughs) kind of have to go on that whole journey. Um, But then she does this film. And I have to think that Hardwick came on board with this because that was the sensibility she had been doing in uh, in her previous films before then. And I, I think that probably the studio said she would be a great person to kind of tap into that, uh, that youth. Uh, do you have a sense of her as a director approaching a story like this that is ostensibly based on a teenage uh, romance novel involving vampires? <laughs> I don't know why it, that felt like a laugh line involving vampires. It's not. I mean, it really is. I know. I mean, they describe it on Wikipedia as a paranormal romance novel. I guess I can just yeah. say that. My my son was like, oh, all my friends say I need to have watched Twilight because, you know, I'm I'm watching horror movies. And I said, this is not a horror movie. This is not even by any stretch a horror movie. The vampire looks like a Christmas ornament. Like, it's not a horror movie. I think it is... Um, I don't know. In terms of Catherine Hardwick, it does. This is not the next movie that completes the sentence that starts with Thirteen and Lords of Dogtown for me. Like this feels out of her oeuvre of being able to um, to play with young people in cinema. Like she just is. She. I think she's better when it comes to the grit and the grittiness of um, of that sort of uh, of, of that a certain style and a certain kind of kid. And this, this movie is not that. And I wonder if, if there, if there might have been, uh, if there are other directors out there who might have, have fit more for this kind of, of story, because I don't, I didn't feel like this was necessarily a Catherine Hardwick film. Well, okay. Well, it's, it's interesting because I think we've talked a lot about how studios, uh, they, they latch onto or studios, producers, they latch onto these indie directors to bring them on to helm big projects because there also is this ability for them to have a little bit of control over the creative, creative, uh, direction of the films. Right. And so to that end, I think, I mean, you know, I don't, I don't think the nativity story was necessarily a an, an indie film or perceived as an indie film, even if it wasn't a success of a film. But I think that it was still early enough in Hardwick's career where there probably was this perception of her as kind of this indie director who did stories about young people. And I could see the the people at Summit Entertainment saying, let's get her. You know, she can kind of bring some of that vibe that she's brought to those films. 
and we can still kind of have a little bit of control over what's going on in the story. I mean, do you feel like there's that sense at least from from the people at Summit when they're looking at at options for direction? Yeah, I yeah, I feel like that's um I I I think that's I can see how that connection would be made. I'm just saying I like Catherine Hardwick's uh and and I'm sure it's also not in a small part because I am you know the movie was not made for me. I have I have read the book. I haven't read the book. Really? I listened I listened to the book, an audiobook. We have the whole series and I listened to it as a Pete's going to sleep book, which means I listen to it for about 15 minutes, fall asleep, wake up and start the book again uh like 45 minutes later. I've done that a couple of times with the book cuz it puts me to sleep, you know, back when it came out. We have it in our collection. It's one of those things. I can't say I've ever I really know what's going on. I'm not an an uh you know, a, a critical reader of the book. It doesn't connect to me that way. But I, I do have it as a put Pete to sleep book. That should be telling. My wife read the book and uh, and she said that it feels um, it, it has that voiceover running through it. Like it's told from a perspective where we're, we're getting this real angsty uh, teenage b- view of the world from Bella throughout. And, and to yeah. that end, it feels very, it feels like they were working. Like Melissa Rosenberg was brought on to, to write, I think, all the films. Uh, she was tapping into that sense of putting us into Bella's head, oftentimes far too obviously, as far as the, the way that the, the narration approaches the story. But still, it's like I, I think that's the idea of the film is to really work at putting us into the head of a seventeen-year-old girl who is struggling with her place in society. She's at a new home, trying to make friends in this new community, and and falls for this guy. I think take out the vampires, it just feels very it it feels very straight up kind of romance novel. And I mean, I could see it working as. You know, I, I don't know. I, I, I could see Catherine Hardwick looking at that and approaching it and going, I can do something with this. I can connect with that character and can find a, a way to kind of get into the, the the scope of it and then figure out how to deal with the vampire side of it, which I, I think yeah. when I look at Catherine Hardwick, I, I do think there's more to her approaching a film like this and being able to direct it without the vampire side of the story. And then looking at it from the vampire side of the story and going, I don't know if Catherine Hardwick's the right director for that. Yeah. You know, and I, I think they were hoping that the drama would come through. And, you know, I guess, again, we're, you know, middle-aged men. And I think that for us, it's it's tapping into kind of a sensibility of that smoldering romance that, uh, that I mean, obviously was very popular with younger and let's be honest, older women, yeah. they they yeah. really kind of connected with it and enjoy that kind of that smoldering romance of these two people and the the mystery of like, why is he so standoffish and and hot and cold with her and stuff? And I, I think there's an interesting element to that, that, you know, it's there. It's just not necessarily our cup of tea. Well, and I, I, I want to talk about Melissa Rosenberg. You're right. She did write all five of these. And Melissa Rosenberg, of people we've talked about our show, I have seen a lot of uh, Melissa Rosenberg written properties. And, uh, I, it, it surprised me when I started looking at these, like I, I was a fan of her first thing, class of 96. Um, she was a writer on a couple of those episodes. She did Dr. Quinn. She wrote a couple of episodes of Dr. Quinn, Outer Limits, Dark Skies, Party of Five, watched every single episode of Par- Party of Five. She was involved in that. Allie McBeal, The Agency, Birds of Prey, The O.C. She wrote Step Up for crying out loud. Um, uh, let's see. And then she gets into Twilight, does all those movies. And then Jessica Jones. She is the big name behind the series, Jessica Jones, which I love. Yeah, she's the showrunner of the that. conception of it. Showrunner of that. Exactly. Uh, I love the conception of it. I love the writing of it. I love I really adored Jessica Jones. And there was not a little bit of me watching Twilight thinking, huh, wonder what this would have been like if there had been just a touch more Jessica Jones, because there's a lot of Twilight in Jessica Jones. When you look at the uh, production design, the coloring, the sort of treatment of it, they feel like, uh, you know, cousins that don't maybe talk to each other that often, but a little bit. 
Well, I, I think it boils down to Stephanie Meyer and the source material. Uh, the the yes. the romance novels that she wrote. I mean, they were incredibly, incredibly popular. And I think you know, Summit Entertainment wanted to adapt that because they said, "Wow, these are really popular. We want to adapt that as is and make uh, you know a great movie series of it because it's going to be really popular." just like the books. And so they go, okay, Catherine Hardwick, she's a director of of teen angsty stories. Let's bring her on. Hey, Melissa Rosenberg, she's written some really interesting TV properties. Uh, let's bring her and and step up, which yeah, I mean it's it is another film that kind of taps into that same market, right? I mean it's very much mm-hmm. that same sort of market that likely would have been interested in this as well. And so let's let's bring these people together and see what they can do with this material. And I, you know, I think I, I haven't read the book, but I, I feel like at least based on this, it's a pretty straightforward romance. And, you know, you know, she's uh, uh, Stephanie Meyer is uh, part of the LDS. And so she keeps her her stories fairly uh, tame. You know, like, you know, there's, you know, you have a bunch of teenagers here, but it's not like they're partying and drinking and smoking and all that sort of stuff. And uh, there's really no sex scenes. There's a there's a little bit of a romantic scene, you know, sensual scene that we have. But largely, she she keeps them fairly tame. And I think for, uh, you know, for that younger audience who's watching the films and reading the books, I think they're it they really fall for that. Um, the draw to that smoldering romance and the connection between the characters. And I think, I, I think it's interesting. I, I do feel like, again, for us, it's probably why we're not that interested in the films or the stories, but I can see why there is such a huge audience for them. And, I, you know, I think it just boils down to, you know, the work that uh, Rosenberg and Hardwick um, really kind of have to do when they jump into adapting the book and making it cinematic. For sure. So let's talk a little bit about the world uh, that they've created on film for us in the uh, my fair part of the country. Uh, what do you think of our introduction to um, to this to Forks to the family dynamic that she's dealing with? Like you, you, you actually you bring up the LDS. It's pretty tame. It's also you know she's a child of a divorced family that is seems to kind of get along okay even if dad is is a bit <laughs> a bit di- of a distant sheriff of forks uh, what do you think about how the movie brings us into the world of twilight it's fine i guess my initial struggle with it, it, it i mean it's setting it up for us like initially we meet bella and it starts immediately with her voiceover and i'm already struggling with some of the voiceover it feels kind of written <laughs> and it feels a little uh you know, schmaltzy and and stuff, and it, and one of the pro- one of the big problems with this type of voiceover is that it's often saying stuff that we can deduce on our own without having to without having to spell it out, which they just decide to do. We're just going to spell it out. Yeah. Again, it's probably for the younger audience, uh, but still, and it's again, it's that whole romance novel side of it like you know we're hearing so much of her raw emotions as she's describing them and stuff i enjoy the opening up of this world of forks which um i to my sense is it's all it's a fictional town anyway it's there's not a real right uh, town named forks in washington right yeah so much of it much of forks is vernonia oregon which is where my dog breeder is dog cow oh, that's nice <laughs> so i i enjoy the uh, the kind of getting to know the world, you know, I enjoy this sense of high school. You kind of get the different groups of kids. It you know it does all feel very tame. Like she seems as we meet Bella and uh, Kristen Stewart is kind of walking around. She seems very awkward, very shy, very unable to do anything. And I guess I'm not exactly sure what we're meant to take from her. Like when they're in the volleyball uh, in gym class and they're doing volleyball, like she's yeah. like, have you never had a of class in in physical education before like she this acts is, like it, it's a yeah. strange it's a strange setup for her in this world treating her like she's never been out in the world before and so it's a little strange for me i mean i i enjoy the way that everything kind of builds and everything feels very safe and tame and everybody like there's really no antagonistic people at the school right. it seems like they're going to be but no everyone really ends up just being friends uh, you yeah. know so I, I you know I, it's fine i 
I think the setup of the world is fine. I like dad. I like the actor Billy Burke playing dad. I think he's, he's great. Uh, largely, I think the cast is good. If anything, I feel like Kristen Stewart ends up feeling really awkward through the whole thing. It largely through the whole film. And I, but I, you know, I don't know. It's tricky because I feel like I, some of it I have to attribute to her youth as an actress. Like she literally, I think she was actually 17 or 18 when she was making the movie. So she's like actually Bella's age. Yeah. And so that's, you know, I, acting like a smoldering romance, especially with a performer like Stuart, who I think can be a much better actress when she's doing more of those internal sorts of performances like she does in Spencer, I think work better. And this, I think it it's a little harder for her to emote the romantic way that she needs to for the film. I that I think it's inter- that's an interesting uh, comment because I found that my uh, I liked I liked the world a lot. I actually really liked the way the kids talk to each other. I think it's a it's a a fine, fun, interesting universe that they're creating here in Forks. I struggle and, and I like the way the Cullens talk to each other as a family, even as they as they look <laughs> Possibly more out of place than the movie lets on that they are looking like the kids have really written off the fact that these essentially translucent people just kind of always walk in and eat at the same table. It's and just a little too each other. weird. <laughs> yeah, they're all dating each other. It's so weird. So weird. Uh, but but I actually I I have found that I liked that. Like, I liked that whole vibe that they're giving off in the high school. I like the way it was shot. Like, the whole universe, the parking lot, accident, like, all of that is good. I I think, for me, the movie falls apart as soon as Kristen Stewart and Robert Pattinson start talking to each other. Their dialogue is, to my ear, the worst. And... I the fact that the movie is it sort of hinges on those two being able to build a believable relationship with one another. I think it it, it fails for me. It, and uh, I think maybe it, it, it would have. I, I don't know what would have made it better. I don't know what what would have made it better. And I'm I'm looking forward to watching the subsequent films to see how, particularly Kristen Stewart maturing as a as a human and an actor who I know is, is supremely talented, you drop Spencer. I mean, that is just a, a glorious exploration of her her like prowess as an actor. But to see how their relationship changes together, because every time they look and talk to each other, their their voices change, their they get all shaky and eh, eh, they repeat little words. And I just I it is nails on a chalkboard for me. Did you have any of that experience? Yeah, so now we're really getting into the relationship and the performances of our two leads at the center of it. I I don't really have problems with Robert Pattinson. I think there's something interesting with his performance, and I feel like I, I, I like the way he's actually bringing like this strange intensity to it. And I mean, it's it's really funny. I like. I started laughing out loud when she first shows up in the classroom, and he literally like suddenly looks like he's going to throw up. Like, <laughs> I know that was actually is... a really nice exchange. I thought that was funny. It was it was hilarious, and and then you learn like she smells so good that these vampires can barely hold themselves back, and it's I mean, it's so silly. But I like the way that he played it. Like it's it's a strange. I don't know. It's it's an interesting take on vampires. And we haven't really talked about that the fact that like this is a different yeah. vampire. They go out in the sun. There's no issues with that except for the fact that they sparkle like you said like Christmas ornaments. So they don't <laughs> want to be seen in the sun, which is why they live in the Pacific Northwest where it's cloudy all right, the time. Right, cuz it's so gloomy. And um and there's uh you know they they really don't have any other issues. They like this particular group, the Cullens, they've decided we're going to be um well they call themselves vegetarians, but it's really like we don't eat people. We'll go feast on deer. Yeah. And things like that. Um, but it's just like tofu. It's just like a tofu diet, which is I don't know, a very funny way to describe it. And you you actually dismiss one of their biggest problems, which is they play hardcore baseball, like too hardcore. That's a real <laughs> problem for them. <laughs> Clearly, it draws the other vampires in the area. So so I like the way that he's bringing this strangeness to the role. In fact, all the Collins are. And, and to that end, I really kind of like totally. the Collins. I think there's like, especially like 
the one brother who like I, the way that they described it oh he always looks like he's in pain or something like that. <laughs> i'm like wow that totally. was so accurate he really does look like he's always in pain and he stayed that way through the whole film and i was like kudos to him for like nailing that because it worked really well i, I just that was I that was so jackson hard. rathbone and he is awesome at playing uh jasper and he is you're absolutely right that he's just constantly his jaw is constantly flexing <laughs> i loved it it was I, I, so i really i i largely i like the characters in fact i liked her human friends too you know with um uh, largely spearheaded by Mana kendrick it's just a kind of a fun group so i really I, I like the casting and i really have no issues with the chemistry between stewart and pattinson in fact i kind of like the the back and forth nature of them and and i don't have as much of an issue with with anything with the relationship between the two of them but to your point where i do struggle and honestly i feel like as i'm watching it i feel like the actors were struggling too how do we deliver this dialogue how do we and you know i i think it's a task that everybody likely struggled with based on stephanie meyer's novel again i haven't read it but i'm guessing that they probably pulled a lot from it but Melissa Rogan, Rosenberg obviously had to figure out how do I adapt this romance novel dialogue? Catherine Hardwick, how do I direct this romance novel dialogue? And these two actors, how do we say these lines to each other when it's all so uh, silly? I think that's a real struggle. And so to that end, I I don't know if any of them decided let's kind of approach it from a campier angle, but I think they could have because I do think there is this sense of it being so over the top romantic and and kind of cheesy that i feel like it ends up playing into a little bit of kind of that uh that campy uh sensibility and to that end i'm like you know i can't fault it i can't fault any of them for kind of giving us what they're giving us because it kind of is the nature of this romance novel story and so i feel like you know it's all there and so i guess i i totally see your point and i cringe too with through the whole film but i'm like they're doing what they set out to do you know and so i don't know i guess that's where i ended up landing with it yeah i i think you actually are putting your finger on some on, on what i think where i think i struggle with the movie the most and why i don't struggle with anything that isn't involved the romance with the romance right like I feel like the police procedural stuff, watching, you know, the the way Charlie Swan uh, interacts with uh, what's his name who plays uh, Edward Cullen? No, uh, not Edward. I'm sorry. Dr. Oh, Cullen. Carlisle. Dead, dead. Peter Fatchinelli. Carlisle. Yeah. 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 The way those two uh, interact with one another, I, I think it's all fine. Like it, it is all like this era circa, you know, early aughts CW level kind of show. Like it, it feels very much like what I would get if I turned on the on the CW at this point. And it's all fine. Like I I get into those kinds of shows. The romance is where I really struggle. And I think you put your finger on it with just how do you deliver the language? And um, and that leads to I think this it, what we have to talk about, which is this conversation about vampires at about 50 minutes, just a little bit after 50 minutes, almost through an hour. There's like 10 minutes of essentially exposition dump where we have to learn about how vampires work. And um, he makes her say it out loud. Uh, you know, that whole thing about why <laughs> vampires and there, there's romance and intensity and they why they don't like to be seen outside and. I don't sleep ever. He she, he takes her to the bedroom. It is it's just a lot for about ten or fifteen minutes of introducing us to the world, and I think the movie really drags in this in this part. And I I wonder why these choices were made. And I think you said it earlier. It's because for a younger audience that they they didn't necessarily trust to be able to keep up with the with what we were showing on screen we had to tell them right and that part that's that's one of the reasons this section of the film doesn't connect for me at all at all at all well it's interesting um because for me like that stuff is fine <laughs> it's, so it's, it's it's interesting our perspective on like what's working and what's not because for me like that's the nature of the story and i'll tell you there are so many smoldering glances and the way that Catherine Hardwick, like, ha I mean, the camera is like a little bit insane at times. I'm like, I, I, I think sometimes oh my God, a little so too insane. much what she's doing with the camera. 
But I like there are a lot of these like long, long stares between the characters and the way that there's just like these smoldering romantic moments. And and so by the time we're getting to kind of that expository, let me tell you about vampires, uh, the real world of vampires here. I didn't have an issue with it. So interestingly, like that so stuff funny. played fine for me where I ended up struggling the most with the film is not the romance, but it's in <laughs> the actual plot of like these other three vampires who happen to be in the the area and all of the nonsense that we have to deal with with first they're killing a couple different people and we're kind of like the police procedural stuff like that stuff feels so tacked on to the film. And that's where I feel like Catherine Hardwick actually for me ended up delivering more on the romantic smoldering drama that she has because it fits more with kind of at least from my perspective her sensibilities and she doesn't seem to have as much control over the police procedural story about the whole you know thing with the three of them once they realize at the end where they're like chasing bella down to phoenix like all of that stuff feels like so uh just kind of um overcooked and um, and also the other thing that I don't think she had a good handle on is directing effects. Like when you're looking at um, when the scene you're talking about, when Edward is showing off his vampire abilities to Bella, like a lot of that mm-hmm. stuff feels like this was a director who just didn't quite have a handle on how to handle effect sequences because it looked worse than like when he's running with Bella on her back, it looked worse than Eric Idle in The Adventures of Baron Munchausen, who's a character who runs really fast and is designed to kind of look like a little model toy, like running across a desktop. Like, it looks worse than that. It looks so bad. <laughs> to the point of, like, I don't know what yeah. just happened. What is this crazy thing? Yeah. So anyway, so it's interesting. Did you That's watch the behind-the-scenes stuff of them making that? I didn't that scene, like there's a there's a scene where they're showing him he has to they're playing Thunder Baseball, right? The the baseball scene, which actually I thought was really fun. I, I am a I'm a fan of the baseball <laughs> scene. Uh, they had to wait for the storm because they play baseball so hardcore that they can only like hit the ball and run into each other um, during a thunderstorm because it sounds like thunder when they do things uh, right. in baseball. It's I don't know why really baseball funny. is the hardest core sport that they play, but it, I thought it was great. And at one point, Edward has to take off into the woods running and they actually harnessed him up on on ropes and had and elevated him above the ground a little bit and had him fake run in the air while they slung him along this like 100 meter like rope course uh at at full speed and my only thought was like great idea why didn't they you know correct that in post like why didn't they make it look not like he was harnessed to ropes because he looked like he was harnessed to ropes being flung into the forest. I, I could not stop. Like those kinds of things I thought too were absolutely hysterical. Like it, it did. These were the kinds of things that took me out of the movie. I just as a follow up to that, that is totally exactly what they did with Emil Blonsky in The Incredible Hulk the year before. And, and like when he's running across the campus to attack uh, yeah. Bruce. And so. But he looks um, quite good. It looks better there. It it still looks a little funky, but just as a point, I just wanted to say it, it's yeah, it's something that has been out there. So anyway, you're continuing. Okay. Sorry. Well, I, that's what that I mean. That's is obviously that's a thing you do to make people look run fast when you're doing it practically. And I just think I, to your point, I think this that for me is an example of maybe a shortcoming in directing effects. Because I think it could have looked cool. And to me, it didn't look cool. All of the whiz-bang, like, vampires move real fast camera shots, uh, I, I thought they didn't play very well for me. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know that that was, that, that was super additive to the experience. So I think it's funny that we apparently saw different movies. I... I really like what I wanted more than anything and what I thought were the best elements of the movie were the police procedural stuff. And when the three this this takes us out of the <laughs> it takes us out of the baseball game when the three evil vampires show up and we actually meet them and he says and and Carlisle says, "You know what? You're you're really causing us some trouble. Can you please uh stop killing things and people in our area because we have a permanent residence here. I thought that was that's a great way to set up the conflict that we have these 
roving vampires. And I like the idea of this like roving gang of vampires. You never know where they're going to strike. And, uh, and the fact that we have the conflict of the permanent residents, people who are upstanding citizens in the community. And when what's his name? Bad vamp. Turns around James. and says, "You brought a, you brought a snack. That yeah. was awesome. That was an awesome exchange. I thought that was really cool. And so uh, that sets up the entire bottom end of the movie, which is protect Bella. I don't understand entirely why there was such, like, I, I get like this is like I'm an old man and I, I didn't connect very much with the intensity of young love." the way it is portrayed here that has caused the entire world to rewire around protecting Bella for Edward when we know some of the vampires in the family kind of just want to eat her. And uh, and so it was it, I I didn't connect with the the emotional background of that, but I did like the execution. I thought it was kind of fun. Like, hey, you guys wear her clothes so that they're tracking the wrong people. Uh, I thought it was I thought that was fun. The chase stuff was fun. Well, yeah, in that moment, like I, I liked that confrontation that we had there like that moment worked fine and that's james victoria and laurent are the three uh and they're they're an interesting set i guess i just struggle with the fact that they're so innocuous to the story they're just here to give us a conflict like there are these murders happening like we just don't care it just it feels so uh tacked on as an element that has to be thrust into the story to give us a conflict at the end and it, it to that end it just ends up feeling very um, poorly written into the story. And it's very frustrating because I think there's an interesting element of these roving vampires, which I'm assuming most vampires are roving and it's just the Cullens who have decided to settle in and try to make this thing work as far as the the way that they're making a life for themselves. That's but my understanding too. Yeah, but there's also this sense of a bigger picture that you barely touch on here when Rosalie is the one who has an incredible issue with the fact that all of the Cullens are being so nice to Bella and they want to take her in as their like family pet because she she doesn't quite say but but she says something that alludes to the fact that it could put us at risk that that kind of starts painting a sense of where we're going to go with this franchise that there's this bigger world of van- vampires and this group could be impacted by the fact that they're now befriending and harboring a human. And so I think there's an interesting element that's getting set up here. I just wish that they found a better way to integrate these three villains to make it something that I cared about. Because by the time we get to that end with James, you know, you know the super tracker pursuing Bella across the country, <laughs> I just I find it to be kind of ridiculous. And also, it's like the whole thing where they're like, OK, but I got to protect my dad. OK, let's go back. And now I'm going to pretend I'm breaking <laughs> up with my dad and I'm leaving him Nonsense. to go back to my mom. And I'm like, yeah, but you're the vampire can still kill your dad. Well, like, why is that protecting like that to me? I, I could not understand nonsense. at all. I'm like, what? You're not protecting him. What's going on here? That was weird to me. But anyway, uh, and that yeah. led to that whole final climax that, uh, you know, I mean, it's fine. It's kind of there's some fun wire work as far as seeing James and and Edward battling each other in the in the dance studio, which, again, why is the dance studio unlocked? Why does she have access to it since she hasn't used it as a little girl? Like what? What is going why on? Why does it look thing? like a gothic cathedral? <laughs> <laughs> so many things that were nonsense. It made for a fun yeah. fight, but it just it built to an end that I just like I just don't understand uh, why these characters are suddenly so important to the story. Yes. Yeah. I So I think the the reason I think we, we might have seen different movies here is because for me, when the movie started and we're running through the forest and we're eating animals, and then later we have the whole police stuff. This is before we've met the Cullens. Like the, the, and, and we get the pieces of Dad and Carlisle working together. And so that was like the principal story for me was the mystery of these murders. Like what is going on with finding these bodies? They keep coming back. They're at the diner, uh, the Carver Diner, and they keep talking about like, did you find them? The boys want to know if you found them. And it turns out the boys are like five inches from her butt. <laughs> Just turning around. Like, that was that was is that supposed to be another comic line? I thought it was great. Um, and, and so all of that was the stuff that I was most interested in because that's the stuff we got first. 
it was before all the expository romance stuff and the vampire lore stuff. Like, I, that's the story that they introduced me to. So that's the one I was waiting to be resolved. So when we finally meet the trio that's been causing this rampage at, on the baseball field, uh, that was, that was a, a welcome resolution to the mystery of who was doing this stuff. Well, I mean, it's the resolution to that, but it's still just, it, it didn't give, like, there's just not enough setup with them ever. I mean, we've got the two kills. The first one is, uh, you don't even see it. It's just a security guard who's walking around, and suddenly he turns around and is attacked. And that's kind of it. Yeah. The second one, when it's uh, Waylon, the kind of the family friend, uh, that one's, you get a little more with that. But again, it's just, there's so little of them that I just feel like, and this could have, I, I don't know, maybe it's resolved in the book, but I feel like they're just not giving it enough time. And they're, yeah, I think the reason that we're both struggling with the film is because we've both latched onto elements of it that the book and hence the film never really build together as well as it should have. Yeah. And, and the fact that we, <laughs> the places where we strongly agree are the places that are straight up nonsense. Uh, I think is is probably telling. So I I do agree. It's not that I disagree with you about the, the trio, that there isn't enough of them. But I, I didn't I, I think what I took uh, what I heard sideways was it was tacked on for me. It didn't feel tacked on. It was underdeveloped, deeply underdeveloped. But the entire movie for me, all the relationships are underdeveloped. Even the stuff I liked um, it was underdeveloped. So um, that's table stakes for this movie. I wonder, do you have any sense of, because my memory of the book is so bad, do you have any sense if anything in the first book, Twilight, is saved for the second movie? I am the last person to ask about that. Your <laughs> no wife will wait. <laughs> I know. <yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that's really, that is an interesting thing to me, because the way, and this is likely something we'll need to talk about during the retake for the series, but what I think is most interesting about this is that this is a series that isn't bought in isolation. You One does not simply go lightly and make Twilight book one, right? There was anticipation that we were going to be making all these movies. And so I wonder just how much baggage they were willing to leave packed for future movies well just looking right now at uh, a comment that was made about it the filmmakers were trying to make a film that was as faced as faithful to the novel as they thought possible when converting it to another medium in fact they go on to bring stephanie meyer on through the entire production process she was on set she was giving notes on the script and giving notes on the rough cut. And she said it was you know, a great experience because they were really interested in her ideas, keeping her in the loop and getting her thoughts on it. So I, I don't know. My sense based on all of that is that likely they uh, there's probably not much left on on the floor as far as um, things that didn't get included. I feel like perhaps they were doing exactly what they could to make it as faithful as possible. Again, I think it's yeah. the producers saying, we want the same audience for the book. We want them all coming to buy tickets for the movie. That's interesting. That's very interesting. Yeah. I uh, I feel like the end gives us such a kind of a mic drop tease of stuff that is going to come next, where the girlfriend of James's girlfriend, <laughs> Vampy yeah. McLifelock is, uh, is walking down the stairs. Like we have this sense of, of, you know, gruesome kind of awareness that there's something to come. There is vengeance that is is to be uh, wrought upon the Cullens. And I, that's as good. Like, bring I like all that. I, bring bring more of that. So in terms of of assessing what the movie is to itself, I think it's I think it does a fine job. Well, now, here's a question that I do have that I think is important to discuss. Obviously, I mean, it, it wasn't made that long ago, but still, I think times have changed. And with the rise of the Me Too movement and, and conversations about the way that uh, people interact in relationships, I think there are elements in the film that now certainly should be reassessed and thought about. Well, I mean, you brought up at the very beginning is kind of the quote about how he was sneaking into her bedroom at night to watch her because it was interesting. There's that moment that I feel like, dude, you are just gaslighting this girl to no end when he's just like, oh, I was standing next to you the whole time when you were when that car was about to crash into you. You just must have forgotten. Like, I'm like, there, there are a lot of elements in the way that 
that I mean, again, they're vampires. They have to kind of you know do what they can to protect their the, themselves, but still. There are elements in this that create a, you know, an unhealthy view on relationships. And I, I, I think that yeah. um, that's certainly something that is worth looking at now. And I mean, it was there then, too. But still, I think looking at it through through more modern eyes with the way that people are talking about films and stories, thinking about it, I think it it's kind of unsavory, like some of the things that the, the, the behaviors that that Edward exhibits. It was interesting that they got rid of the whole the bit of lore where you have to invite a vampire in right to your house. Yeah, like right. she like the fact that he did his whiz bang. I'm in your house now through your window. And she asks, do you do that often? And that's the extent of the challenge that she poses to him coming in and out of her bedroom while she's sleeping is, I think, uh, problematic. So. I feel like we're the, you know, we're in a we're in a space where their codependence knows no bounds, and we should we shall see the runway is long before us. I worry. Yeah, no, it's it's going to be an interesting conversation to kind of continue because uh, it's it's a little creepy, and I, I'm curious to see how it resolves itself. And you know, I don't know. It, it's funny because with Stephanie Meyer being so religious and imbuing so much of her kind of religious beliefs into the the sensibilities of the story. There's an element of it also that I, you know, I don't know. I, I feel like there are some sides of religious thinking that tend to, you know, put the, you know, put the woman, uh, it make them a little more diminutive uh, than the man. And I think that that's an unfortunate byproduct in a lot of of those sorts of leanings. And right. I, I think modern times have, you know, thought a little bit stronger about that. And so I. I don't know if that's coming from her or it's just the romance novel side of it. And they're trying to kind of get, capture that. But it just feels a little I don't know. I just I didn't like that side of the story. Yeah. All right. So that's that's Twilight. What else you got? Oh, I just want to say my favorite thing about the movie. Sure. I actually love Carter Burwell's score. I oh, love I put that on my notes to too. movie. So good. That main theme. Although I started laughing out loud again when it turns out Edward Cullen plays the music in the film. I'm like, oh, my God, of course he's going to play the score. (laughs) But still, I do love the music. It's great. Yeah. Great, great. You know, I speaking of the religious stuff, I the the final scene when you when you look at what, you know, vampirism in pop culture like as it's as it is written in lore as an allegory for, you know, sex and virginity and and um, you know, rape and uh, all of the kind of things you can write on top of of vampire lore. How does that affect the last scene for you where she is bitten by Vampy McLifelock, and then he stops and is beaten up, and then Edward has to suck the venom out of her to help her to make her survive, and it's hard for him to restrain himself. Well, aside from the kind of the nonsensical side of that element of the story, like, why did his bite, you know, it's just kind of a weird thing. Is this like venom? Like, are they squirting venom into their victims? I yeah. thought they were sucking the blood out of them. So maybe it's just his saliva is full of his stuff and it gets into her bloodstream. It was kind of weird to me. I, I didn't really, I guess I don't fully understand some of those vampire elements within the story. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I guess it's okay, but I guess there's this sense of the, um the, you know, the inability for, for partners in a, Partner is probably the wrong word, but people in a in a sexual relationship who get to a certain point and then they just can't control themselves anymore. And yeah, there is this sense that Edward has to learn how to how to hold himself back, how to be abstinent when he's sexually aroused, essentially. And I think that that certainly stems from kind of the religious sensibilities of Stephanie Meyer is that, you know, no matter how horny you get, you got to learn to hold back because you got to wait for the right time. And so, you know, there's an interesting element to that, I suppose, that she's probably putting into it. Yeah, I I think so. I think it's one of those, uh, it, it you know, I, I mean, once you start painting with that particular brush, the movie becomes um, a, a, a more of a challenge to to watch. If you if I if I just let it go. Uh, I can I can have some fun with it. Like I I like the the world is fine. The people are fine. I struggle with the rom- hyper romantic language. But again, the movie wasn't made for me, and that's okay. That's fine. Uh, 
But are you there for the smoldering shots of staring? So smoldery. Oh, God. Uh, I did have more than one fantasy in this movie about uh, our Pats taking on and uh, showing up in the Batman costume. That I think would have been amazing. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the next one, believe yeah. it or not. I know, it's crazy. All right, well, we'll be right back, but first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson, music by G9, Oriole Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds the stats for the awards and numbers at d-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. How to do it award season, Andy. Uh, did well for itself. 32 wins with 16 other nominations. Over at the Saturn Awards, it was nominated for Best Fantasy Film, but lost to The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. Uh, for the awards, though, for the rest of these, though, I'm going with, you know, the kind of awards that it got more of. Uh, MTV Movie and TV Awards. It won for Best Movie, Best Female Performance for Kristen Stewart, Best Breakthrough Performance for uh, Robert Pattinson, Best Kiss, Best Fight, which is the one at the end. Uh, it was nominated for Best Breakthrough Performance for uh, Taylor Lautner, but he lost to Pattinson. The, it was nominated for Song Decode by Paramore, but lost to The Climb by Hannah Montana in the Hannah Montana movie. At the People's Choice Awards, it won Favorite Movie, Favorite On-Screen Team for Lautner, Stewart, and Pattinson. At the Scream Awards, uh, Lautner won Best Male Breakout Performance. It won Best Fantasy Movie, Best uh, Fantasy Actor for Pattinson, and Best Fantasy Actress for Stewart. Ashley Green was nominated for Supporting Actress, but lost to Jennifer Carpenter and Dexter. Cam Gigandet, I'm not sure how to say his last name, uh, the villain, he was, uh, he was nominated for Best Villain, but lost to Alexander Skarsgård in True Blood. Uh, Pattinson uh, was nominated for Breakout Performance by a male, but lost to Lautner. The Ultimate Scream was nominated for, but lost to Star Trek. And Best Ensemble, it lost to Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Also a bunch of the Teen Choice Awards, but, you know, it's all the same sorts of things. Very, very popular. Okay. Then let's, you know, why we're here is because this is a big franchise. How did it do at the box office? Yeah, for uh, Hardwick's entry into Meyer's Vampire series, he had a budget of $37 million, pretty small to start things off. That's $44 million in today's dollars. The movie opened November 21st, 2008, opposite Bolt, Four Christmases, Transporter 3, and Australia. It handily nabbed the number one spot, but Four Christmases actually moved to the top spot for the next two weeks, knocking this down a notch. It never did get back up to the top spot and only stayed in the top ten for five weeks. That being said, it was very popular, going on to earn $194 million domestically and $214.5 million internationally for a total gross of $486 million in today's dollars. That was a big win for Hardwick and everyone involved. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on what you think of the franchise. <laughs> Regardless, <laughs> it did end up with an adjusted profit per finished minute of $3.6 million. A great start for the franchise. So brooding. But so good for the Pacific Northwest, Andy. I mean, what a real <laughs> tentpole for the tourist industry. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I, you know, I'm glad we're doing this series. We were, I think we were rightly lampooned for putting the Twilight series saga on our list for this year. But I think it's worth it for, you know, 50-year-old white guys to talk about teenage romance vampire movies. It's an interesting uh, saga, for sure, to dig into. And, you know, it's funny. I'll tell you. That it was funny. I was talking to my wife about this last night as we were watching it. And we got to the baseball part when the other three show up. And she's like, oh, this is about where I always turn it off. And I'm like, always turn it off? How many what? times have you seen this? And then she looked at me with this guilty look <laughs> on her face. She's like, yeah, I've seen it quite a few times. <laughs> She's like, well, you know, when it's on, it's just an easy thing to watch. And so I guess, you know, it speaks to the draw of the film. And so, yeah. uh, but she hates the, the like, she's like with me, like all the stuff at the end. It's just like, uh, here, this is all stupid. So, but yeah, it's a, it's a fun I, thing to explore. This is where I start. You start me at the <laughs> baseball field. That's where I'm going to pick up the movie from now on. Exactly. It's a, it'll be an interesting thing to explore for sure, though. So, uh, but we will be right back, everybody, for the ratings 
first, here's the trailer for next week's movie, The Twilight Saga, New Moon, directed by Chris Weitz. The Volturi are the closest thing my world has to royalty. They enforce the law. Vampires have laws. You're a human who knows entirely too much about us. They could kill us all. You just don't belong in my world, Bella. I belong with you. This is the last time you'll ever see me. Please just promise me you won't do anything reckless. It's like a huge hole has been punched through my chest. I know what he did to you, but Bella, I would never, ever do that. There's only one way I know to see him. So, you're an adrenaline junkie now? you're dead what he's going to the Volturi he wants to die too he left you Bella he didn't want you anymore I have to go he's gonna make a scene the Volturi will kill him if he reveals himself in the sunlight no Edward don't I'm scared Andy, you've heard of Letterboxd. It's our favorite social network for uh, uh, movie lovers. And uh, we love Letterboxd personally. We use it personally quite a bit. The show has its own Letterboxd page, letterboxd.com slash the next reel. But if you find that you tried the Letterboxd and you love it and you want to get rid of ads and support the team, you can get your own upgraded Letterboxd account to pro or patron by using the discount code NEXTREEL at checkout or visit thenextreel.com slash Letterboxd. It'll take you straight to the checkout page with the 20% already applied. And uh, that's good for renewals as well. So, Andy, what are you going to do with this movie? How many stars are you going to give it? This is a really tricky one to rate because I'm like, I, I, I mean, it was kind of engrossing and I was laughing throughout it. Like, it was kind of like, terrible in a way i you know i think i'm gonna give it and this is you know 50 year old white guy reviewing a teen romance <laughs> movie i'm gonna give it two stars but i'm still gonna give it a heart because i still find it it's entertaining <laughs> enough it does it does what it needed to do andy i i think i might join you i was toying with whether or not to give it a heart if i give it a heart it's it can't be over three stars that's way too generous but if i don't give it a heart i could maybe go three stars on it so i think i'll join you in the two star water i think i'll join you there two stars and a heart it was it, it was fun funny i laughed a lot i didn't like the romance but the rest of it i kind of like i dig shiny vampires let's see what happens uh, when we when we get introduced to a little bit more lore next week absolutely well uh, as pete said don't forget to visit the slash letterboxd to get your patron or pro membership and it does work for renewals as well so what did you think about twilight we would love to hear some thoughts on this particular <laughs> one hop into the show talk channel over in our discord community we will be talking about the movie this week when the movie ends our conversation begins Letterboxd giveth, Andrew. As Letterboxd always doeth. Oh, it so does. I went very low. Oh, did you? Ooh. Yeah. Can we start at the bottom of the barrel? Let's do it. This is what I've heard. This is a this is one that that hinges on a uh, a trait of Kristen Stewart that I've heard other people note, and this review actually puts some data behind it, and I think that's important. This is a half star review from Oxy underscore. 
who says, Every time you rewatch a film, you always find something new to learn about it. In my fourth rewatch, from what I've noticed, I have learned that Bella bites her lip 47 times over the course of this film. <laughs> You're welcome for this knowledge that I have bestowed upon you. Star. <laughs> I hope they have that evidence running through the entire franchise. That's going to be great. I feel like Cinemetrics needs a spinoff on the (laughs) the case to lip biting uh, uh, per film ratio. I think that would be important per minute. Oh, my gosh. So So good. That's really important stuff. Absolutely. Well, I've got a number. I've got a four star review by number one Gizmo fan. uh, Very popular review. And I went high on the reviews. Who had this to say? My mom forced me to watch this and then quoted the entire thing and then started crying because she didn't have someone like Edward. And I told her that their relationship was actually really abusive. And she said, sweetie, I know me and your dad got divorced because of this movie. And now she's running around the house looking for something to eat. Please save me. Oh, my God. My mom made me watch Twilight. Oh, Andy, what are we doing? What are we doing? Oh, well, thanks, Letterboxd. (laughs) I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today. <laughs>